The next subject in our programme has the title Trusting God Always and Above Everything Else. Or we could just take the words of Jesus from the passage um, as a shorter title for our subject today uh, when Jesus said, do not worry. So we are in the next part of Luke chapter 12. Our passage today is from verse 4 down to verse 31. The passage is divided um, really, I think, into two main topics. And the first is quite similar. It's a continuation of what we were thinking about last week. It's uh, an encouragement to be open and honest about our allegiance to the Lord. So that's our first topic. And the second, um, although quite different, um, are our attitude to material possessions, whether they be luxury items or just our daily necessities, that's similar in that we can also put the strap line over that one that we, we should not worry. So there are two topics joined by that common theme of um, not worrying. So I'm going to read the first um, part of the passage, Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to read from verse 4. <clears throat> I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So following on from what Jesus was saying about hypocrisy last week, we can see that he hasn't really changed the subject. If we hide our allegiance to the Lord because we're worried about what people might think of us, it's just another form of hypocrisy. We're still pretending to be something that we're that we're not. Now the context here is the threat of hostility and Jesus knew that in the early church there would be terrible persecution but the principle still applies doesn't it? It, it still applies even with a much lower level of threat and um, I'm talking there about the fear of disapproval, the fear of disapproval. Last week I was talking about how the Pharisees were addicted to approval they cared more about what people saw on the outside than what God saw on the inside. And I was saying that it's quite possible for us to do the same. And in fact, I would guess that every single one of us does it to some extent, even if it's, even if it's only a little. But there are two sides to this coin. One is about doing things because we want the approval of people to look good in the eyes of people whose opinions that we care about. And the other side of the coin is about not doing things which might cause disapproval. And that's the type of hypocrisy that the Lord was, was referring to here, I think. We know from verse one that Jesus was talking to his disciples here, um, not the Pharisees. So he says it a lot more gently than what we were thinking about last week, what he said to the Pharisees. And he also knew that the persecution that they would face 
would be a lot worse than the kind of disapprovals that we might have to um, deal with. So he wants to reassure them. He wants to reassure them that they have nothing to, to fear. And in verse 4 he says that even if that persecution should come with the threat of death, we don't need to fear. We don't need to be afraid because anyone who um, tries to hurt us, at worst, the worst thing they can do is to hurt us in this life. And it's God who cont controls our eternal destiny and um, whether it be uh, eternal death um, in hell or whether it be eternal life with the Lord Jesus, um, God is in control. And if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our saviour, of course, we can look forward very much to the latter eternal life in the presence of the Lord. The overriding comfort of verses four to seven is that we have a God who knows. And he knows us intimately, doesn't he? And he loves us and he cares for us. That's the, the context of the godly fear that Jesus said that we should have towards God. Let's read um, the passage from verse four onwards again. Or rather, yeah, let's read from verse four. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. I will show you whom you should fear. El Shaddai, one of the names of God, God Almighty, is awesome, isn't he? And we should have that attitude of deep reverence towards him. But at the same time as his children, we know that we have nothing to, to fear from God. Isaiah experienced this fear, didn't he? In Isaiah chapter six, verse five, he looked on the Lord in all his glory and it says, Isaiah said, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah looked on the Lord in his glory, and he was terrified. But we discover only a few verses later, Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. He's volunteering to serve this God that he's terrified of. And we get the same with Moses. Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, it says, hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. But in Exodus 33, we're told that God would speak to Moses like he was speaking to his friend. Proverbs 1 and 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's how we get to know God. It has to start with that reverence and appreciation that he is all that he is but it doesn't take away the ability for us to relate to and understand that he is the God who loves us and wants to be our friend. But the more we appreciate who God is, the more we'll be emboldened in the service that he calls us to. Or as it has been said um, um, by someone, the fear of God will keep us from the fear of men.
Verse 8, it seems that Jesus is no longer talking directly to his disciples. It looks like he's now talking to the wider crowd again, because I think the tone changes and the language is more blunt. The issue is still whether or not people will publicly acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but he's using that now to differentiate between believers and unbelievers, acceptors of Christ and rejectors of Christ. Remember Romans 10 and 9, of course, it says that true saving faith involves a willingness to tell others. We confess with our mouths, believe in our hearts, confess with our mouths that Jesus is, is Lord. So we need that um, willingness to tell others, don't we? And we've seen that the Lord is sympathetic to the fear that might make us reluctant to do that sometimes in the face of persecution. But if we're so reluctant to do it that we never do it, um, or if we're actually ever ashamed to be known as a Christian, then that really does raise a question over the genuineness of our faith, doesn't it? If we're never willing to confess that Jesus is Lord. So verse 8 is describing those who tell us about their faith and verse 9 describes people who are the complete opposite, those who deny and disown the Lord Jesus. And between the two, I think we have the silent majority. We have the genuine Christians who are fearful and reluctant or who don't live out their faith in a meaningful way. We have the pretend Christians who are trying to be everything to everybody um, just to win approval. And we have the agnostics, those who don't know, those who try to, to sit on the fence. And, and the whole spectrum, all of us, everyone will stand before the Lord one day and he will ju judge the um, true convictions of every heart. As I said at the beginning, he knows, God knows, God knows what's in our, in our hearts. So I think verses 8 and 9 um, are dividing everyone into two camps. But verse 10 is just looking at those who are vocal about their rejection of Christ. So these are, are a, a subset, if you like, of everyone in verses 8 and 9. And Jesus splits them up further into those who reject Christ in ignorance and those who make an informed choice. Let me bring that to life. Um, C.S. Lewis. Okay, so I think most of us have heard of C.S. Lewis, um, great theologian, writer of The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. He's a, you know, he's a, a great um, theologian. But most of us um, are perhaps aware that C.S. Lewis started off as, a, as an atheist. He was completely hostile towards the Christian faith. He set out to disprove Christianity and to prove that Jesus Christ was a fraud. And yet, as you may know, all he succeeded to do in doing was to the complete opposite. In all of his research to prove that Christianity was fake, he managed to prove beyond reasonable doubt, certainly to himself, that it was absolutely true and he became a saved man, became a, he became a Christian. And Jesus is saying in verse 10, that anyone who speaks against him like that, but repents, that they will be forgiven. The gospel doesn't, isn't, they're not, they're not disqualified from the gospel in, in, in any way. The next verse, many Christians have worried about this next bit, this idea that there is an unforgivable sin. But I think Jesus is basically just saying that anyone who speaks against him and does not repent, that 
they cannot be forgiven. He's saying more than that, but when he referred to those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, I think he had certain people who were in the crowd that day mostly in his mind. I think that's what he was, he was thinking about when he made those comments. You remember on a previous occasion, some of his enemies attributed the work of the Holy Spirit through Christ as the work of Satan. Now that is, that is blasphemy. And these were, we don't know, but possibly people who knew deep down that Jesus was all that he said he was. But for their own evil um, reasons, they chose to um, reject him. And I'm not sure that Jesus is actually saying that they could never be forgiven having um, committed that sin. What I think he's saying is that in the hardness of their hearts and his knowledge, his foreknowledge, he knew that they would never repent. Their hearts were so hard and against him in committing that, that sin, as I say, um, a sin in the a rejection of Christ in the knowledge of who he was. I think Christ just knew that they would never repent and therefore they could never, could never be forgiven. It's, it's a difficult verse. Uh, it's not one that we need to worry about. Whatever the correct interpretation of that verse is, it's not one that we need to worry about. In fact, I've heard it said that if you're worried about it, then you're kind of automatically putting yourself into the category of the people who don't need to worry about it because you're concerned about your eternal destiny and your relationship with God. So um, please never worry about that, um, that verse especially when we remind ourselves of the overwhelming evidence in Scripture that we have a God who loves the world and, as it says in 1 Timothy 2 and 4, doesn't want anyone to perish. He's certainly not looking for excuses and, and uh, um, sins that he can point out and say, oh, well, you've committed that one, you're not, you're, you're not coming in. Um, he wants all to be saved. So, uh, tricky um, section. I think I've stumbled my way through that one a little bit. Just to summarise, um, that as far as we are concerned, verses 4 to 7, Jesus was encouraging us to not be afraid of showing our allegiance to him. He wants us to live out our faith in a genuine and appropriate way and not to worry if people are disapproving or even if they are hostile towards us. And I think the main force of the warnings in verses 8 to 10 is towards those who reject the Lord Jesus. Um, if there is a challenge for us in there, I think it is that question, that hanging question, that if we are not willing to confess to being a Christian, it is just that hanging question, isn't it? If we're not willing to do it ever, if we're in any way ashamed of our faith, it does just leave that hanging question, doesn't it? it how genuine is our faith in the first place. If we're not willing to confess to being a Christian, how can we expect the Lord to um, confess to us being belonging to him? If we're not to say he is ours, why should we expect him to say that we are his? I think that's the, the point that, that, that is being made here. Let's move on to the next section. Um, the next section is a warning about materialism. And again, the main message here is not to worry because God can and will give us all that we need. But there is a lot more to it than that. And in response to a question from the crowd, Jesus said in verse 15, um, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. 
Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. The warning is about greed, or older versions call it covetousness. And definition, uh, greed is an insatiable desire for more and more. It's something that is never satisfied. The greedy person is never content with what they've got. And it gives rise to an attitude where money and possessions are, are all that matters. And Jesus tells them that parable that we know so well um, to show how foolish that attitude is. Um, I'll just quickly read it, verse 16. He told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. It's not wealth in itself which Jesus is condemning here, is it? It's the attitude of greed which led to the wealth in the case of this, this um, man, fictitious or not, that the Lord Jesus refers to in the parable. And uh, I think in the, uh, in the context of the parable, you get the impression that if God hadn't intervened, this rich man would have soon got bored of taking life easy and he'd soon be looking for the next scheme on how he can make himself even, even more rich. There are two key phrases which stick out for me in this um, parable. Verse 20, God says, Who's going to get what you've prepared for yourself? So it's that last word that reveals the real problem, isn't it? He had a selfish heart. It was, it was all for him. And then in verse 21, we get the consequence of that attitude. It says that he had a lack of richness towards God. So although wealth in itself might not be wrong, it comes with a risk and the risk is that it can damage our relationship with God and that's far more important isn't it uh, we often quote the first part of 1st Timothy 6 and 10 but really we should read the whole verse because the whole verse gives us a lot more depth as to what the what the risk is it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs and those griefs are the things that greed and worry have in common. The greedy person can never get enough, but the worrier is afraid that they'll never have enough. In both cases, there is a preoccupation with possessions, and that's the, the barrier preventing them from having a healthy relationship with God. And it can affect rich and poor alike. This is not a rich person's problem. It can affect rich and poor alike. The rich can feel so self-reliant that they don't think they've got any need of God in their life or they've got no time for God because they're so busy keeping themselves rich. But those who are not rich, they can be so conscious of the things that they don't have that it makes it harder for them to trust God and to believe that he really cares. So it's a problem for people whether they are, are rich, or, rich or poor. 
Now we know what Jesus said about greed. What did he say about worry? Um, quite simply, he said, don't. Don't worry. But he gives us a reason for that. And it started back in verse 7 when he said how valuable we all are to God. That was why we shouldn't fear persecution, because we are valuable to God, far more valuable than mere sparrows. And Jesus uses exactly the same argument to show why we shouldn't worry about our day-to-day -day needs either. Let me just read what Jesus said from verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap, they've got no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life, since you cannot do this very little thing? Why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labour or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. I think the Lord's words speak for themselves in this passage, really, but if you would permit me just to add a few, a few points. Um, firstly, um, unlike the greedy person possessed with his or her possessions, Jesus does recognise that food and clothing are, are important. They're, 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 they're um, legitimate concerns. They're essential for, for human life, aren't they? Um, along with other basic necessities. And, and also, he's back speaking to his disciples here, not the wider crowd. Uh, and that included at least some who had left everything to, to follow him. By the way, he wasn't saying that we shouldn't be concerned about daily necessities. Um, being prudent and working hard and not sponging off others are, are good things to be encouraged within the context of a contented Christian life. But we shouldn't worry about them. Worry is fear. Anxiety, apprehension, it's being, a, it's being afraid that we won't have enough to live off. That you won't be able to cope, that, that God doesn't care. That's at the heart of worry. It's a lack of trust and faith in the God who loves and cares for us. And the key to it all, um, being able to trust God always and above everything else, is that appreciation that God cares. And if he cares so much about the little things Jesus was saying, birds and flowers, then as Jesus, as we read in verses 24 and verse 28, how much more, how much more valuable are we and how much more will he care for us? There's a logic to it, isn't there? A very simple logic that the Lord Jesus wanted to convey. Now, it doesn't mean that no Christian's ever been hungry or cold or without adequate shelter or health care. As Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 4, I know what it is to be in need, he said. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The Apostle Paul 
we might consider to be one of, the, one of the greatest of Christians in terms of what we know about his life and his devotion to the Lord. He wasn't rewarded in some way for all of that by a life of plenty. He had, he, he had both. In fact, as we, as we read at the beginning of the passage, the persecution that Jesus was warning his disciples that they would almost certainly encounter would in some cases lead to death. And if not death, then surely a lot of hardship would potentially um, be associated with the persecution that they would, they would come under. So this isn't the prosperity gospel. You know, we can't take verses like this and say they somehow negate Jesus saying, in this world you'll have trouble. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Jesus isn't saying if we put God's things first, we'll always have food on the table and uh, a warm house and a nice car on the drive. But I think the main reassurance here is that God cares and he'll either provide the material things that we need or he'll help us to cope if we're called to go without them. But whatever happens to us in this life, whatever it might be, whether we have a life of comfort um, to some degree or whether we have a life of chronic um, need, um, one day we're gonna share in the unimaginable riches of Christ, aren't we? Co-heirs with Christ, it says in Romans 8 and 17. Or a uh, great verse in 1 Corinthians 2 and 9, which says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. What happens in this life is for such a tiny time compared with the rest of eternity. Um, I still love uh, a video that Elaine brought to camp a couple of years ago. I hope you don't mind me uh, re-quoting it, um, uh, Elaine. I, I wish I'd brought the props, but the, uh, the, the, we, we watched the video with the youngsters. And this guy's on the stage and he's speaking to a whole crowd of, um, of students. And he says, this is what your life's like. And he's got a rope and it's a long rope. It goes from, he was holding one end of it, goes right across the stage. It's already a long rope. He says, now, imagine this long rope is a lot longer than you can even see. Imagine it goes out the door. Imagine it goes round the building several times. It's a long rope. And he said, this little bit at the end, this little bit here, this is your life on earth. And he was saying, what blows his mind is that so many people spend their whole lives concentrating and providing for and worrying about this little bit at the end with no regard to the rest of the rope, which in his metaphor was the whole of eternity, our life that goes on and on and on. What happens in this life, whatever we have, little or not, uh, is only a small time compared with everything else that the Lord has promised for the future. And the key to it all, uh, or the secret, as Paul put it, wealth without greed or poverty without worry, and everything in between is having that right relationship with God, isn't it? And making that our main aim in life, seeking his kingdom, as Jesus said. That is the secret of godly contentment, of being able to trust God always and above everything else. Uh, to each one of us, the Lord Jesus is saying, do not worry. Let's pray.